Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, often people experience anxiety when they think about the future. However, it doesn't have to be that way. For those who know God and his thoughts of the future bring eagerness and comfort. For example, describing a woman who knows and trusts God, which is Proverbs 31, 25, she smiles at the future. That's right, Jimmy. And we look at it, we're like the watchmen on the wall who in ancient times would have looked for the enemy's arrival and they would blow the trumpets to warn of the approach where we're looking for the signs that the Bible tells us of what's going to take place in the end times. We see those things happening. It gives us confidence and assurance about the future. Our program, we look at current events and we look at the practical aspect of how we are to live today according to God's word. Our broadcast partners today, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, is Israel Madad, Paul Scharf, R.C. Morrow, and always the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father. Rick, let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have with me Ken Timmerman. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs. He's an author and analyst. You can find out more about him. Sign up for his newsletter by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's uh, always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we're going to focus this week around the world, but we'll start with Iran. And we look at this situation, and they are warning now. They are saying there is going to be an inevitable expansion of the Israel-Gaza war. Can you talk a little bit about Iran's position here? Well, what I find very interesting is that the position that you've just mentioned is being put forward by Hussein Amir Abdullahiad, who's the foreign minister. That's rather a new occurrence. He is somebody who was not very prominent until recently, on the world stage at least, and he is engaging in a dance of deterrence. He has become really the lead spokesman for the Iranian regime, not the president, not the Grand Ayatollah, not the Majlis leader as we've had in the past. And this is quite interesting to see him take the lead. I've been looking into him recently, and unlike his predecessor, Javad Zarif, who was all smiles to the West, Amir Abdullahian is the man who is engaging in the threats, saying that the war is going to expand, that the United States has to back off its support for Israel, that the world has to get behind a ceasefire in Gaza or else. In the meantime, Iranian proxies are attacking U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. I think we're up to something like 24 or 25 attacks now. And on Thursday, the U.S. finally responded a second time with a pinprick uh, attack on an Iranian position in Syria. But this is a, I've called this a dance of deterrence, Rick, because the Iranians want to goad us into greater action. At the same time, they really don't want to be hit by Israel. They would like to engage with America, engage with our troops in Syria and Iraq, but they really don't want the Israelis to hit them. So they're walking a tightrope, just as I've said of Biden in Ukraine, who's willing to fight Russia to the blood of the last Ukrainian, the Iranians are willing to fight Israel to the blood of the last Palestinian. Well, can you look at the situation? And we've mentioned this before, but the contrast between when President Trump was in office, they killed Qasem Soleimani, they pulled at the then Prime Minister Netanyahu's urging, they pulled out of that flawed nuclear deal, sanctions, and this was being tough on Iran. That's what the case was. Well, Sometimes I feel like President Biden's policy was to just do the opposite of what Donald Trump did. And so he started to appease the Iranians. And they're looking to become the major player in the Middle East. They are looking to 
push out America. And I feel like what we're doing is working into their hands. We are, Rick. And the Iranian regime's goal from the beginning of the 1980s has been to drive the United States out of the Middle East. Remember, I was on the ground in 83 when they attacked our embassy in Beirut. They attacked the uh, U.S. Marines in October of 1983. The son of the former Revolutionary Guards commander defected to the United States and lived in my house for six months. And he told me that his father was absolutely uh, elated to see the response of the United States after the Breen Barracks bombing in October of 1983, that we left, that we pulled our troops out of Lebanon. He says that's the beginning of American withdrawal from the Middle East. Rick, that was 40 years ago. This has been the goal of this regime in Iran ever since. They think that the harder they hit us, the more they will force us to retreat. And the Biden administration, like Democrat administrations before Obama and Carter, has been providing the Iranians with security guarantees. They've been saying, look, just make a deal with us and we will for example, provide no aid to your opposition, either inside or outside. We will crack down on the Mujahideen. We will crack down on other groups. We will unfreeze your assets around the world so you have access to large amounts of cash. I believe it's been a huge mistake by the Biden administration to make them such offers uh, because the Iranians are just going to come back and kill more Americans. We look at this situation, they're not necessarily a military power that wants to attack anybody else head on. They use these proxies. That's the way they operate. Would it be different if they became a nuclear power? I mean, I I think that's a rhetorical question, maybe, but what is this going to do to their nuclear ambitions? Rick, the problem with understanding Iran's nuclear strategy is that we have very little insight into the thinking of the supreme leader. The CIA does not have the sources in Iran that are giving them that kind of insight. The Israelis don't have that insight either. The Israelis tend to have active intelligence operations in Iran, such as getting the Iranian nuclear archive out of the country and publishing it around the world, uh, killing nuclear scientists, trying to delay the nuclear program. But we don't know what Iran's ultimate intentions are. Uh, There have been reports, quite credible in my view, that the Iranians actually tested two nuclear warheads in North Korea at the end of 2009 and 2010. And uh, we've known for a fact that Iranian nuclear scientists and military officials have always attended those North Korean nuclear tests. And uh, the North Koreans, uh, on their part, have always sent their scientists and officials and technicians to Iran to witness their missile tests. We know there's a very close cooperation there. Is Iran already a nuclear power? That's what I believe. I tend to think that they have all of the technology necessary to make a nuclear weapon. It's just a question of when they determine to do so. When is it to their best advantage? And unfortunately, Rick, we don't know. The United States doesn't know. I don't think any of the Western powers know. The International Atomic Energy Agency doesn't know because we can't read into the mind of the Ayatollah. Well, let's move on from Iran and look at a couple of other things. Uh, this Israel-Gaza war, President Biden has, for the most part, been standing behind Israel, but he is coming under increasing pressure, not only from his uh, progressive uh, liberal uh, Democratic Party, but around the world. There are diplomats saying that there is a growing fury against the U.S. in the Arab world. How is President Biden going to be able to stand against that? 
Well, Rick, I've seen that myself. I do Fox News Arabia shows uh, with uh, commentators from around the Arab world. And, you know, I hear them speaking the same kind of nonsense that they were speaking in the 70s and the early 1980s about American imperialism, about Israeli occupation. The Israelis aren't occupying anything anymore, really. What they're occupying is Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And certain parties in the Arab world can't tolerate that. I think the leaders of the major states, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, have gotten beyond that. They're ready to live with Israel. They would, of course, like to see a ceasefire in Gaza. They don't want to see suffering of Palestinian civilians, but they also understand that Israel cannot allow itself to be attacked. This week, we saw a cable from the deputy chief of mission, the number two at the U.S. Embassy in Oman, warning the Biden administration of this growing fury in the Arab world. What I would say, Rick, is that it's really the growing fury of the Arabists inside the State Department who have always hated Israel and who have always taken the side of the Arab world. You had a number of Biden officials who have resigned over the past two weeks to protest Biden's uh, continued support for Israel. This is nothing new. Rick, let me just say, to me, the bottom line of what's going on with Israel in Gaza is that it's time for a total Israeli victory. The Israelis have been gracious in half victories for so many years, and every time they give up territory, there's another war in the offing. Israel has to turn Gaza, in my opinion, into Berlin 1945. It has to be a total victory that tells the Palestinians they have no hope of a state unless they're willing to accept Israel. They have no hope of Hamas ever ruling again in Gaza unless they accept Israel. And the United States must not stand in their way. Well, let's move on from the Middle East and quickly look at Russia. We haven't talked about the Russia-Ukraine war in a little bit. It has been pushed into the background because of the Israeli-Gaza war. It looks like Russia is maybe making some headway in the war. And also here in the United States, it looks like Congress is not willing to continue to write a blank check to fund the Ukrainian war. Can you give us an update on the Russia-Ukraine war? Well, Zelensky clearly believes that the U.S. is being distracted. He has said so many times, and he's frustrated at this. He's frustrated that the $61 billion in new aid to Ukraine is being stalled. The House is not going to approve it. The House of Representatives will not approve it. Uh, They have uh, voted out $14.3 billion of aid to Israel. And I can hardly wait to watch Democrat senators vote against that aid package, as some are promising to do. Uh, That will be interesting to see. Look, these aid packages are splitting the left-wing Democrats from the more mainstream Democrats. And uh, when you have Democratic senators voting against aid for Israel and voting for aid, U.S. aid, to pay the pensions of Ukrainian civil servants, I think uh, Americans are going to find something very curious and very wrong about those choices. Well, as always, Ken, an excellent job keeping us updated on what is going on around the world. We appreciate you taking the time to do that, and we'll talk to you again next week. Uh, Thanks so much, and God bless, Rick. Great job, as always, Ken. And Rick, our understanding of Bible prophecy really does help us to see current events and how it is setting up future events in Bible prophecy. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan from Israel. Winky Badad, Paul Scharf coming up in the program on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. An Israeli military spokesman warns that Hamas leaders are dead men walking as ground troops advance to the heart of Gaza City. Thousands of Palestinians are fleeing northern Gaza, the U.N. reports, as Israeli ground and air campaigns intensify. Co-founder Tom Doyle says Uncharted Ministries partners with and supports Christian leaders on both sides. Please pray that people will turn to Jesus for lasting hope instead of a political solution. What we're seeing has been shocking to the world, but I think we have a different worldview as the church. There's a deeper problem, and it's the sin problem. And until people are pulled out of that and transformed by Christ, there's not going to really be the change that we're hoping for. And a nonprofit board typically oversees an organization's strategy, finances, and operations. A recent trip to Uganda introduced Wycliffe USA board members to the Bible translators they support. Board Chair Lindsay Olsberg. Boards are functioning at a pretty high vision level. So we've heard about the different processes before, but to see them face to face and see who the end user is, work to really strengthen our confidence in the quality of the translations. The story continues at missionnews.org. Myself and the rest of the board came away with great confidence that project funding is having the desired effects, both in terms of scripture being translated in a way that's accurate and natural, but that also churches are being built up in the process. Mission Network News is a listener-supported service of One Way Ministries. Sat7, a Christian satellite TV ministry to the Middle East and North Africa, offers a free sample of Dr. Terry Ascott's memoir, Dare to Believe. Get yours at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Dodd Morris. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio. I'm Rick DeYoung, and along with my brother Jimmy, we look at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is the segment of our program that we call our Middle East News Update, where we look at news coming out of the Middle East in general, but Israel in particular. To do this, we use a journalist with over 30 years of experience, Dave Dolan. He's been with us not only weekly, but almost daily as we do our daily program as well since the October 7th attacks. He's been keeping us updated. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Well, you're welcome, Rick. But again, I wish it were better news. David, there's a lot going on on many different fronts. You've been keeping us updated. What's the latest? Well, uh, fighting further intensified, if that's possible, up on the northern border of Israel on Friday. It's been a week of exchanges, but three Israeli soldiers were gravely wounded, the IDF said, by an anti-tank missile that was fired at their outpost near Kibbutz Manara. That's near where I lived in the northern uh, Galilee region. Two others were more moderately wounded, but three very badly wounded. And uh, that came as three drones crossed over into Israeli airspace from either Syria or Lebanon, not clear, near Mount uh, Hermon, uh, near the Golan Heights. And only one was intercepted by uh, IDF fire. Two got through, one exploded and wounded a civilian man there. There were more rocket attacks from Gaza into Tel Aviv and the central region on Thursday and Friday, and all week that went on. Uh, A couple more people were wounded in that. 
And the IDF announced that a rocket that hit in southernmost Israel, the port city of Eilat, on Wednesday, didn't come from Yemen, as was suspected, but came from Syria. That's a long distance, Rick, a very long distance. So that's a powerful Iranian drone, probably. Meanwhile, from Yemen, we did have more attacks during the week, and of course, the Yemenites uh, shot down an American Reaper drone, a very expensive $32 million drone, over the Red Sea in international airspace. So that's an act of war that uh, we'll have to see if there's any reaction from the tepid Biden administration, I would say. And we had, uh, we had of course, heavy fighting continuing uh, in the north of the Gaza Strip, especially around three hospitals that the IDF believes house not only Hamas fighters, but also command centers underneath them. There was another uh, humanitarian pause on Friday and all day this week, although it was only announced on Thursday by the White House, but they started last weekend actually, four-hour pauses every day by the IDF in action so that civilians could evacuate to the south relatively safely. And on Friday, they extended that to six hours, so a longer, and they've been notifying people every day by in Arabic, by radio, and by leaflets when these hours will be, and, and et cetera. So um, that continues, but uh, the UN says the humanitarian crisis is uh, escalating there. A lot of people are running out of space to for tents even in the south. Uh, there's been more aid coming in from Egypt, but uh, nowhere near enough, they say. And of course, the IDF says that uh, hundreds of civilians in those hospitals in the north and other Hamas buildings are being held hostage, essentially. They're not being allowed out to join these people heading south. So um, that's uh, a continuing situation. Another Israeli soldier was killed on Thursday, bringing, I think, the number to 38 now so far. And uh, we had another uh, attack on an American base in Syria. The Al-Tanf base was attacked on Friday. That was the 47th attack reported, known attack, on U.S. bases by Iranian-backed proxy forces, but the Israelis believe actually it's revolutionary guards, the Iranians themselves, who are stationed with these, quote, proxy forces that are doing the firing. And that came, of course, after America for a second time struck an arms depot in Syria that is a revolutionary guards arm depot. Many in Israel are saying the U.S. will probably need to do more there if they're going to deter Iran. Obviously, it's not being deterred, and their foreign minister said again on Friday that, that if America does not stop this war soon, the region will explode and there'll be a further escalation uh, due to what he called Israeli aggression in the Gaza Strip. Well, Dave, let's let's go from there then. There's a lot of people calling for a ceasefire. There's a lot of people saying that Israeli aggression or the, the loss of civilian life in Gaza supersedes anything, and we need a ceasefire. We need to stop. But that only plays into the hands of Hamas. And Israel is basically, and this is something I said to Ken just before this, Israel is basically in a position where they must get rid of Hamas. They can't allow them, after that attack on October 7th, they can't allow them to continue to be in Gaza, can they? They can't. And what people don't understand, I think, is that 
Hamas is an organized group. It was set up by the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood in 1987. It's got a charter. It's got a goal, which is, of course, Israel's total destruction, no negotiations, no Jewish state. From the uh, seat of the river, they want Israel completely destroyed. They make that abundantly clear, as does Hezbollah, as does Iran, their backers. And that is the core of this whole problem. We have a group ruling over a people that really don't necessarily want them. I mean, you know, there hasn't been an election in Gaza since 2006. And it's true that Hamas won the parliamentary election, but the presidential election, they did not win. And yet they took over in 2007 violently and have ruled ever since. So they are holding all of the people there, frankly, hostage. Now, many do agree with their radical ideology, you know, which, uh, as I say, is really not that radical because they're just fundamentalist Muslims that take the fundamentals of their Quran, etc., very seriously. We should uh, wage jihad. Uh, a sword should be used, heads lobbed off, and the sort of things that Hamas has been doing. So that is the core problem. There's no way, as Benjamin Netanyahu said again this week, that Israel can exist, can live with this terrorist state right next to it that has an, uh, you know, a government that is horrendous and that doesn't care for its own people, that takes all its money for its military purposes and not for the need, civilian needs of the people, etc. So I agree that that is the core. And of course, uh, Netanyahu announced on Friday or confirmed on Friday that the IDF will have to remain in Gaza whenever the war ends for at least a season until it brings total stability and makes sure there can never be a return of a uh, radical Muslim government there in the future. Dave, you mentioned Prime Minister Netanyahu and his leadership during this time of crisis. Well, in the months leading up to October 7th, there was many, many protests against Prime Minister Netanyahu's government, against what they called a far-right government. And now this is the government that's leading them forward. They have somewhat of a unity government because they have been joined by Benny Gantz. But going forward, are the people of Israel confident that they have the right people to lead them through this time? They are behind the current government strongly, Rick, in its fight against Hamas. But no, those underlying uh, divisions are still there. And uh, as I've said before, uh, Netanyahu is the uh, Donald Trump of Israel. He's You either love him or you hate him. A lot of people really despise him, really hate him, the left, the center, and do, do not want to see him continue as prime minister after the war. And uh, they've already stated that when it ends, they will have an inquiry. And he's the one most responsible for this as prime minister for the uh, attack taking place as prime minister. And they will demand his head basically after the war ends. But for the time being, they are all united in fighting this this evil monster on their doorstep. I mean, you can't put it any other way. And just read uh, um, Sabina Maddox's uh, account in a Canadian paper this week who witnessed the the vicious footage of the attacks on, on October 7th. And she spells it all out. And even in, in words, without seeing it, you can hardly read it. So that's what took place. And that has united them behind the cause of getting rid of Hamas But after that's over, then they're going to go back to a little bit more politics as usual. But, of course, this may be many, many months long war and probably will be.
David Dolan, a journalist with over 30 years of experience reporting in Israel for places like CBS News and other outlets. Dave, we are very appreciative of what you do. And you're not only a journalist, but you're also an author and a prophecy teacher in your own right. You have several books. We appreciate the fact that you come on our program on a weekly basis. You give our listeners an opportunity to hear what is actually taking place in Israel to keep you updated. Thank you so much for what you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You're welcome, Rick, and God bless. Great job as always, Rick. Two key thoughts to keep in mind about the future are, first, God is sovereign and in control over everything. He knows the future, and he absolutely controls what will happen. The Bible says, remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. The second thing to remember about the future is that the Bible outlines what will occur in the end times or the latter days because the Bible is God's revelation to humankind and because God knows and controls the future, as Isaiah said, then it stands to reason that when the Bible speaks about what will occur in the future, we can believe it. Concerning predictions about the future, the Bible says no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Israel Madad, Paul Scharf, the Legacy Series, and R.C. Merle, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I like to think that we are a watchman on the wall trying to help those to alert the body of Christ, those that follow God's word, understanding the prophetic end of times, uh, the scenario that's going to take place. I like to think that we are trying to make people aware of what is happening. And we do that by examining current events. And uh, in this half hour, We'll talk to our good friend, Paul Scharf. But first, Rick, I think we need to go back to Israel. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Israel Madad. We call him Winky. That's his nickname. Winky lives in Shiloh, which is in the area that we call Judea and Samaria. But the world might call it the West Bank. But that's where he lives. Winky, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much once again for having me on. And uh, let's get to work. 
Well, Winky, as we look at this situation, I mentioned that you are in Judea and Samaria, or the area that they call the West Bank. And so let's start right there, if you could. Uh, We all know what's taking place in Gaza. We've talked about that quite a bit, and maybe rumors of more of an expanded war on the northern front. But many are saying that the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, that area is going to be essentially the third front with the large Palestinian population that is living there if they start to get to a point where there needs to be military or police control there that could really take much of of Israel's resources. Can you tell me what is it like there in Judea and Samaria right now? Listen, Rick, we've been together on this program for the past two to three years, almost every other or third week. So we've been talking to our audience, and our audience is probably well informed by now, that there are incidents that are happening all the time here. Uh, However, it is a good trick by the Palestinian Authority or those who are pro-Palestinian, either in Congress or even in the White House, or at least in the State Department, to try to turn the focus up on what's normally happening out here, which is that we have rocks throwing. And we have, for example, this week we had a shooting on Thursday morning. And we've had the IDF now for the past year going after a lot of uh, terrorist cells especially in Janine, again on Thursday morning and afternoon, the IDF was eight hours in Janine. So this is normal, but they highlight it. And then everybody says, well, you know, as you questioned me, uh, honestly, is this going to be a third front? Well, it's been with us all the time. Mm. It's been with us because uh, Mr. Abbas instigates and incites to terror and he pays for terror, which is one of the reasons why the U.S. Congress legislated the Taylor Force Act. And uh, I'm sorry if I sound a little bit this anyway, I used to say ticked off a little bit here, but I saw that report about the White House pressuring Israel that they're not gonna give 24,000 rifles uh, because they might get into the hands of the settlers. Well, first of all, why don't you take away all the rifles and guns that are being used against the Jews in Judea and Samaria punish the Palestinian Authority, withhold the money that they're paying for the terrorist stipends and grants, and then we'll come back to the table and talk again a little bit. Uh, I don't think this is very fair to the reality on the ground and the situation. And uh, so that's my brief but brusque answer on that one. As we continue to look at the situation, the war effort, it does seem that Israel is holding off any kind of escalation in the north for the most part, and they're making progress in Gaza. Now, there's been some losses by the IDF, but not very many compared to what they have done, and maybe people felt that was going to be done. It does seem like the war effort, for the most part, is going well as far as Israel is concerned. Is that true? From the reports I try to follow daily, if not hourly, it's probably one of the reasons why you have me on the program, (laughs) is that uh, the IDF is doing amazing work on the ground. We've had losses, including someone from Shiloh uh, who was killed uh, earlier this week, but they are pushing into Gaza. A few years ago, I remember, I don't know if it was with your dad or one of you guys, We discussed this about splitting Gaza by going directly to the sea and then closing in. And that's what they've done on the north, just below Gaza City. They're sitting on the beach, okay? Well, not exactly sitting, but, you know, they're on the beach. And uh, they've cut off the north. And they're moving right into the center of Gaza City. 
and they're doing it with tractors and bulldozers and in addition to everything else they've got there. So they're doing very good work. And as far as I understand, the top uh, command or the high command, if you can call it that, of Hamas is completely cut off from the troops. They're, they're beginning to completely lose their way. Of course, they could be more dangerous that way if they know nothing else, but we've still got 240 or so hostages or people who have been abducted that we need to get out. And uh, we want to destroy as much as possible uh, the fighting force in terms of humans of Hamas terrorists and everything else they got there from munitions to rockets to, to everything else they have. So let's talk about that. Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about the hostages. That is Israel's main priority right now. And uh, these two things can't be talked about without comparing them together. Much of the world and many people who either don't know the situation or maybe have are just being willingly obtuse about the situation are calling for a ceasefire. And a ceasefire would essentially stop all of this progress and keep Israel from being able to put the pressure on that they need to do to try to at least have a chance of getting the hostages. Is If I could ask you, am I characterizing that correctly? A ceasefire would be very bad as far as it's concerned when it goes to trying to maybe possibly get these hostages back. You are correct. The only way there's going to be an end to this conflict and the uh, rescue is the continuing of the military ground campaign. Anybody who wants a ceasefire should first of all come here to Gaza and demonstrate outside Hamas headquarters. That would be a very nice thing to do, but that's not going to happen because the only reason they're demonstrating is to put pressure on Israel. Second thing is to be a little bit more informative. I've heard for about the sixth time already, okay, number six, that there's only 48 hours left of fuel and uh, medicine for the hospitals, medical clinics, and everything else that goes on there. Dialysis, dialysis patients, etc. right? But nothing's happening. Just everything is keeping it going on. Reporters, diplomats, politicians, for some reason, it's axiomatic, do not believe the Israelis and do believe whatever Hamas is throwing out there. It's like, this is the equation, all right? The battle for public consciousness and reality and 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 that of course generates the demonstrations that we see all over the world to the extent that we have people who don't believe there are people who are kidnapped and they're ripping posters of the 240 people including the babies the infants there are nine months there's a nine month old infant that was taken okay and people that are in the 70s and 80s in between in wheelchairs Right? They're ripping these posters off of the walls and telephone poles and lighting poles in New York City and Los Angeles. And they killed a Jew who was demonstrating against them in, uh, in Los Angeles. I mean, this is really, really turned around upside down situation in terms of rationality and proper discourse. Well, that brings up basically my final subject that I wanted to talk to you about, Winky. We look at this situation, and uh, we've all read the history books. We know, we've seen the movies about what happened in Hitler's Germany and the extermination of the Jews and essentially the killing of six million Jews. And we look at that, and there's extremely well documented. We have it. It's in the history books, but there are many that deny the Holocaust. We've talked about that on this program before. Well, we continue on and we look at this situation. We had an event that took place just a little bit over a month ago, just 
33, 34 days, however many days it was. And there are already people denying that that was a massacre. They're saying that it was fake, that it was, you know, it didn't really happen like they said. They said that these attackers were trying to be humanitarian when they kidnapped, you know, 80-year-old ladies and put them on a motorcycle and drove them into Gaza. All these different things and, and killing of the babies, they're saying, well, that's fake. That didn't really happen. Even in the presence of evidence, videos that were recorded by the Hamas attackers themselves. And so we look at that situation. I mean, there is no other way to look at that. And and this goes back to them calling for a ceasefire. There's no other way to look at that than an anti-Semitism that maybe we thought we had moved on from the Holocaust. But if, if we look at it in this way, it seems to have only gotten worse around the world. There's an anti-Semitism, an anti-Jewishness. If you could, Winky, could you address that subject for us and your thoughts on that? Well, it's very difficult because to describe it or to to comment on it or to explain it so that you don't get into that morass of hatred and spitefulness that people come up with. Very simple. As you said, most of the terrorists were wearing GoPro cameras. They recorded stepping on soldiers' faces and cutting off heads, uh, especially of, of the Thailand workers that we saw, I don't know, well, I saw, so I don't, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and emotions and upset anybody, but the things that was done and were recorded is out there to be seen. And as you said, people were just saying, no, it didn't happen. And they, they get, people find comfort, psychologically speaking, and I'm not a psychologist, although I did study it for a year, right? Uh, of going to conspiracy theories, because that way, they don't have to deal what is very unnerving for them. To realize that the enemy of the Jews, and since they don't like the Jews, well, they must like this enemy. Well, this enemy is not a good person at all, even for them. And, and here's my bottom message. And I think that you and I talking about this could help America in this thing. They're coming for you guys afterwards. When they finish with us, they won't. But when they stop finishing with us, Right? They're coming for you. You on the college campuses, you in the streets. And I'm sure that anybody who's listening to the program is probably well informed. He occasionally reads a newspaper and turns on the television. He sees what's happening in the streets. The intersectionality, I think is the word, between so-called progressives and underprivileged United States and the Arab Islamic cause in the United States, in London and other places. Okay, so if people are listening to you and I just look around a little bit and say, well, it's not only Israel, it might be me and my neighborhood uh, and my academic professor for my kids next on the line. Certainly agree with you, Winky. That's one thing we do on this program. We keep people aware, and uh, that is uh, we just need to look at these things very carefully. And and oftentimes what people say they're going to do and the way people say they're going to act, they actually do act like that, and that is what is taking place right now, and it could come here. Well, Winky, thank you so much. I know uh, you're taking time out of your busy day there in Israel. We are praying for you here. Our listeners are praying for you. We are hoping that you keep safe and We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Excellent information. And this information 
really is so that the body of Christ can be prepared and understand where we are. For believers, the very next thing I believe that's going to take place in Bible prophecy is the rapture of the church. Everything that we're talking about is all future. So for believers, we need to understand that. But this information, the events that we cover, the practical information that we cover on Bible prophecy really helps us to determine the times in which we're living, which Daniel, the prophet, did. Well, a lot of questions have been coming in, and uh, I, I had needed to get in touch with a friend of mine because these questions are pertaining to Israel. And I wanted to get my good friend Paul Scharf onto the program today. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be back with you. Yes. And uh, Paul, these questions that come in, and uh, you have an expertise, you're, you work with the Friends of Israel, you have your own ministry, you're teaching. We'll talk about that later. But these questions that come in have to do uh, in the wake of events unfolding in the Middle East. Many are wondering what the Bible says regarding the final future salvation of Israel. And even some have sent in the very verse that uh, that you know very well. And so all Israel will be saved as it is right. written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And so, you know, as we're witnessing all these scenes on TV, it's also common for evangelicals to raise this concern. Why should... We be distressed for the nation of Israel today when they are people in unbelief. Right. Jimmy, that's, of course, a question that weighs on all of us, but we believe we've had answers to those questions that, quite frankly, have been taught for many decades in our dispensational circles as we teach pre-tribulationalism and premillennialism. Uh, as, as your father and you have such a legacy of proclaiming, we know that the people of Israel have to be in unbelief, but reconstituted as a nation mm. in unbelief for the tribulation to begin following the rapture. And so we have these glorious promises of their future salvation, as you read, Romans chapter 11, verse 26, where Paul is merely echoing the words of the great prophet Isaiah Isaiah 4, verse 3, it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. So this is nothing even new from the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, and it's nothing new in terms of what we've been teaching and explaining, but somehow there's a disconnect, and you and I both know, Jimmy, that our dispensational teaching is on the wane, sadly, in many churches which used to be faithful to teach it. And I think there's also, there's a disconnect oftentimes, especially among some younger people and sometimes some not so younger people who just haven't made the connection between the fact of what we've taught all these years and what we see on our television screens. And it's so vivid, of course, before us since October 7th. Mm. You know, Paul, it, it's imperative that the believer understand God's program for the Jewish people. And the future is after the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is for the believer. Everything after that, right. that seven-year period of time, that is for the Jewish people 
and to bring them to a day of salvation. How will right. Israel come to faith, and what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Jimmy, that is such an important question, because sometimes when we say, with the words of the Apostle Paul, all Israel will be saved, some people actually think we're saying that every Jewish person who's ever lived, <laughs> yeah. even, if they've ever, even if they've lived and died and rejected Christ as Savior, that they will ultimately still be saved. We're not saying that. We're not teaching a universalism, even mm -hmm. of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. uh, sadly, Jewish people can be lost, as, as all people can be lost without Christ, and will be lost without Christ. We're not saying even that every Jewish person who begins the tribulation will be saved. Right. That misses the rapture, because we know, sadly, Zechariah 13 talks about two-thirds of the nation being cut off and dying during the days of the tribulation. And that's in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. Mm. Uh, I have some hope, Jimmy, personally, as we look through the very complex prophecies that deal with that time, that we don't have time in this interview, obviously, to put together God's deliverance of the people of Israel during the tribulation, I have some hope that some of those two-thirds will die as martyrs mm. for the gospel and be saved. So we're really talking about one-third plus, I like to say, that we believe will be saved, and that one-third will be brought through physically all the way to the end of the tribulation, and that will evidence their spiritual salvation. That one-third of the nation that begins the tribulation, Zechariah 13.9, I believe, will be the nation as it's constituted at that time, and the whole nation will be saved. And, and how they get there, again, is a very complicated story, but I believe some, some, Jimmy, will come to faith at the very last available moment, Zechariah 12.10, they will look on him whom they pierced, They'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And they'll look in faith at that very last moment and they'll be saved. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, that's our prayer every time uh, we're in Israel with all of our Jewish friends. Yes, Paul, that is our prayer as we recognize that that verse is so true. How might the current worldwide anti-Semitism lead perfectly into the post-rapture climate for Israel. Jimmy, could we ever imagine it being more um, adaptable to the world we read about on the pages of Scripture than what we're seeing now? Mm. You know, what we're seeing unfold, a worldwide anti-Semitism? Who would have thought on October 7th that within a few weeks the yeah. whole world would be turning against Israel, persecuting the Jewish mm -hmm. people yes. in a way that is reminiscent of the Holocaust. It's unreal. And the prophet Zechariah told us in Zechariah 14, verse 2, that all the nations, Jimmy, mm -hmm. would be gathered against Jerusalem. And John, in the book of Revelation, makes it clear in chapter 12 that Satan will energize the Antichrist. For the last half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, persecuting the people of Israel, driving them into the wilderness. And so obviously the things that we're seeing unfolding right now are setting the stage for this end-time anti-Semitism, this hatred of the Jewish people, an irrational demonic hatred. But 
could it be any more clear that the stage is being set for the events that will happen right after the rapture, I believe, when Israel it will be in such desperate need of some kind of treaty or covenant, and they will make that treaty as a nation in unbelief with the Antichrist. Yes. You know, and Paul, you and I, we are watching what's taking place. We mourn for the yes. Israelis, but it's almost as if the Lord has a bell and he's ringing it, and he's ringing it. Right. Wake up, wake up. Because, right. you know, right. like you said, who would have thought before October 7th that all the world would be divided right. over either you're for Israel or you're against. So right. how do efforts to bless Israel today relate to her future salvation, Paul? Well, that's the wonderful thing, Jimmy, about God's promise in the Abrahamic covenant. He'll bless those who bless the people of Israel. By the way, he'll curse those who fail to bless them. Yes. But he's going to bless our efforts to bless the people of Israel. That means when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem today, it may not come today. In fact, it will not come today. But we pray for it today. We pray for a temporal peace as much as possible. We pray for that ultimate peace when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. But we seek to bless the Jewish people. We seek to take the gospel of their own Messiah, the Messiah that they, physically speaking, gave to the world that we've received. We seek to take his gospel to them. They may not receive it today, as you know, Jimmy, Mm. but God is going to use our meager efforts toward his magnificent purpose, as I write in the article, we're talking about the future salvation of Israel. And he is going to use these things toward his ultimate purpose and ultimate goal. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He has everything in control, and he's using our tiny efforts that we provide with his help. And when we seek to bless the people of Israel... All of that, I like to think that all sort of works together towards Mm. God's ultimate plan. He's going to use that, and he's going to bring the Jewish people to faith in their Messiah. Uh, Great, great thoughts, Paul, and uh, great instruction for the body of Christ. Uh, Most people that listen to this program have an understanding, and if they follow us and they've been following us, They understand our focus on the Jewish people. Events that took place are driving people back to Israel. Events that took place are preparing Israel for that time in the future, as you have so eloquently described. Paul, this week is the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, uh, which also coincides with the founding of Friends of Israel. Tell us the connection there. Yes, Jimmy, I was privileged to write the article for the Friends of Israel blog. People can find it, foi.org, about Kristallnacht. I call the blog Walking Over Broken Glass. It was Mm -hmm. the night of broken glass, Wednesday night into Thursday, November 9 and 10, 1938. Why is it significant? It was a a kingdom-wide, in the Third Reich, persecution Mm -hmm. of the Jewish people. And it was the launch, officially, of the Holocaust, and 30,000 Jewish men went off to Dachau and Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen, never to return. These were upstanding businessmen, leaders, attorneys, professors, doctors, men who had fought in World War I for Germany. But now the Holocaust has begun. The treatment of the Jewish people will is totally changed by the Nazi regime. 
and the suffering of the Jewish people begins in earnest. It was a night that uh, the world said it would never forget. I wonder how many still remember, Jimmy, what it's all about. Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Those uh, German officials were, I think, gleefully walking over the broken glass in their torment of the Jewish people. It was a bloodbath. But half a world away in Philadelphia, there were people willing to walk over broken glass with a heart for the Jewish people, they came together and founded the Friends of Israel, what's now the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And they had such incredible wisdom and courage, Jimmy, and they were willing to risk everything they had to begin this ministry that endures today, 85 years later. It it came about three weeks later, uh, on December 1st Mm. of 1938, a Thursday, three weeks after Kristallnacht. Wow. Great ministry. And uh, Paul, thank you so much. Uh, this is, uh, it's important. Uh, you know, we're experiencing a, a form of Holocaust again, and it could and it will, according to Bible prophecy, get much worse. And uh, it's important that we understand uh, God's plan for the Jewish people, God's program. And uh, Paul, thank you. Uh, how can the folks uh, get and watch what you presented as you talked about this very topic. Jimmy, people can find all my resources at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, that's P-S-C-H-A-R-F. That's where I have a library of all my materials for my ministry within the Friends of Israel. And, of course, they can find all about our whole ministry at foi.org. Paul, thank you so much for joining with us today. God bless you, and uh, we hope to encourage you, Paul, to keep teaching and edifying and educating the body of Christ in these days in which we're living, to understand how close that we are to the rapture of the church. Thanks, Paul. Lord bless you. Thanks, Jimmy. It's a privilege, and it's always a wonderful joy to be with you. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series will be focusing and wrapping up his series on the connection between Jacob and Esau and how it relates to today. At the end of the program, R.C. Murrow will come and talk to us about Amalek and how Prime Minister Netanyahu used that phrase in his press conferences last week. Well, we'll take a break and we'll come back right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, it sure has been a great program today as we listen to all of our broadcast partners. If you'd like to know more about Bible prophecy, know more about the ministry of Prophecy Today, go to our website, prophecytoday.com. You could sign up for our devotionals, sign up for our newsletter. You can also go to our bookstore and look at our Bible prophecy study materials. And as always, we appreciate your support. If you'd like to, you could donate at our website as well. Yes, <laughs> donate uh, financially, of course, but with your prayers, we covet that as well. Rick, uh, today, as we come to the conclusion of our series on our legacy series of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, it's amazing how this program fits together like this. As we come to the end of our study today, we'll examine the prophetic passage that leads up to today and see what is happening in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians is actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. 
Please take your Bibles and let's go to the little prophetic book of Obadiah. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Go to the book of Obadiah. Now, this is a prophecy. We're moving and making a transition from history into prophecy. The first part of Obadiah is history. The last part is prophecy. Notice what it says. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, and thou art greatly despised. Verse 3, the pride of thy heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. This is history. Because where did these Edomites go to live? They went to live in a place called Petra. Let me explain what it's talking about here. Let's say this front aisle right here is the King's Highway. This is the way of the kings and the merchants coming out of Africa on their way to the Persian Gulf. The King's Highway came right by the entrance of Petra. Let's say this aisle right here is the Sikh, C-I-Q. That is an Arabic word meaning high, narrow gorge. This Sikh is about a mile and a third long. At some points, it's as wide as my arm span. It expands out to about 30 feet. It's about anywhere from 300 to 500 feet high. And this is the only entrance into Petra that you can get into this impregnable city. This is where the Edomites under Esau went to live. What they would do, they were notorious for killing the merchants and stealing from them. The merchants would come by the king's highway. They would run out to seek. They would rob the merchants. And then you can see the narrowness of the seek or the gorge getting into the city. It's so narrow, they could put three or four men here and hold off an army. But should they get inside the seek, which is 25 square miles, the cliffs in there are 2,000 feet high. Some man-made caves, some God-made caves. And they like... Eagles nesting in the clefts of the rock would hide there. That's what Obadiah says. You're proud because you think nobody can bring you down. Nobody. But God had a plan. The only friends to the Nebataeans, excuse me, to the Edomites was the Nebataeans from Saudi Arabia. They're the famous stone carvers. If you've ever been to Petra, you see the results of their work. As you get into Petra, right there at the entrance is the treasury building, five stories high, carved in the sandstone with the colors of the rainbow. As the sun moves across the sky, the colors change. It's majestically beautiful. They were the only friends of the Edomites. And they got together for a banquet. Go over to chapter, uh, to verse 7 of the book of Obadiah, which is going to tell us exactly how they turned on their good friends, the Edomites. Verse 7 of the book of Obadiah. And all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding of them. God is going to run the Edomites out of Petra, and the Nebataeans will take over. This is 500 years before the birth of Christ. They go out, make a westward turn, they cross the Jordan Valley, they go into southern Judah, and they become the Idumeans. Idumeans. That's what Herod the Great was, an Idumean. They're descendants of Esau. And there they establish another kingdom. 
They, however, are going to face judgment because Bible prophecy says these people will come to judgment. Once they got there, they became powerful. In fact, Herod the Great, supposedly the king of the Jews, appointed all high priests. It wasn't done halakhically through the Jewish law. And he comes to power. It's 70 AD. The Romans under General Titus come in to wipe out the Jewish people. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to devastate the city. They're going to disperse the Jews to the four corners of the earth. Coming to the aid of the Jewish people are their cousins, the Idumeans. Titus was successful. He disperses Jews to four corners of the earth. He disperses the Idumeans, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, to the Balkans, to a place called Bosnia, where they would go to live and start a community. But God's judgment is going to be upon them. Let me tell you. Let me jump over to 1917. General Allenby, he's leading the British forces in the Jezreel Valley. They defeat the Turks. They come into Jerusalem. There's going to be a mopping up exercise in Jerusalem. General Allenby hears the Turks are going to surrender. He gets ready for them to surrender. He gets on his white horse. He rides up to the Jaffa Gate. As he approaches the gate, dismounts from his horse. Now, I know this story because of Bertha Spafford. She was the youngest daughter of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the song, It's Well With My Soul. He was a missionary in Jerusalem. They were on the terrace of the hotel overlooking the Jerusalem Museum, where there on the steps of the museum, the surrender was to take place. As General Allenby rode up, dismounts, gets off his horse, the aide said, Sir, aren't you going to the surrender ceremony? He said, I am. He said, why did you get off your horse? He said, because one day my Savior, Jesus Christ, will ride a white horse into this city. He said, I'm going to walk. He walked in. He gets the surrender from the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And then he has a responsibility. He sees a man over there who's the highest Muslim cleric. I've got to name a mayor of Jerusalem. Mr. Husseini El Husseini, you're going to be the mayor. Well, that's a cute boy that you have with you. What's his name? Aman al-Husseini. Oh, that's your nephew. That's 1917. Aman al-Husseini grows up. He goes to Mecca and Medina, makes the Hajj. He's called the Hajj Aman al-Husseini. He becomes the Mufti of Jerusalem, the highest ranking Muslim in all of the Middle East. He gets a communique from Adolf Hitler. It's now the early 40s. Adolf Hitler says, come join me to the solution to the Jewish people. Hajiman al-Husseini, Hitler's Mufti, the name of a book written by two University of California professors, goes and he gets the word from Adolf Hitler. Here's the plan. I put up a one million watt radio station, the most powerful radio station in the world. It's off the coast of Monaco. By the way, today that's Transworld Radio. Today it was a Nazi communication center. Go on that radio station. Call for the Muslims of the world to rise up and kill the Jews. It's recorded at the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. He goes on, for the honor of Allah, Muslims of the world, rise up and kill the Jews. Then Adolf Hitler says, you know how I've been winning these wars in Europe? With a blitzkrieg. A blitzkrieg, I put my army in the form of a V. At the apex of the blitzkrieg, I put the elite commando unit from Bosnia. And they go in to take over the country. 
Get your commando unit from Bosnia. Go back to Israel. He goes back. And there in Israel, the Bosnian elite commando units in the War of Independence try to destroy the Jewish people. It's their heritage. They fail. Oh, by the way, the Hajjaman al-Husseini, he had a nephew whose name was Yasser Arafat. Do you understand what I've just told you? Yasser Arafat, Hajjaman al-Husseini, Husseini al-Husseini, Herod the Great, Haman, Agag, Amalek, Esau, all wanting to kill Jews. Malachi chapter 1 says, the Edomites will say, we will return. We will build. And God says, I'll call your borders the borders of wickedness because I have indignation against you forever. Ezekiel chapter 35. There's a judgment pronounced, listen, against Mount Seir where the Edomites went to live. Because you killed your brothers and stole their land, I will wipe you out as if you've never been. Have you still got Obadiah? Look at the last couple of verses and we'll close. Last couple of verses. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, so it shall be done unto thee. Thy word shall be returned unto thy own head. Look at verse 16. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. The holy mountain is the temple mount of the city of Jerusalem. Does that mean these Edomites will go up on the temple mount and get drunk drinking Jack Daniels or something? No. It means like Zechariah... 12, 2, they will become intoxicated with power. Yasser Arafat, when he was in charge, stopped Bill Clinton from making a trip onto the Temple Mount. Intoxicated with power. The Edomites, the Palestinian people today, stopped the Jews from going on the Temple Mount. Look what will happen here. Verse 17. But upon Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness in the house of Jacob. That's the Jewish people shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, the stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. What's going to happen? When Jesus Christ, look up here, please. When Jesus Christ comes back to Jerusalem, the Jewish people get all the promises he promised them. And the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the Palestinian people of today, are the stubble in the flame, and they're burned up. Jeremiah 49, 18, they'll be as Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Obadiah said, you burned my temple down, you will pay. The history and the prophecy of the Palestinian people, the Middle Eastern conflict that will break into a full-blown war only to be dealt with when Jesus Christ comes. And this is the only time in history we've been just like this. We're alive in the time. How do you deal with that knowledge? Father, 
thank you for this awesome book, an amazing book, articulate book, accurate book, a book that deals with the days in which we're living, a divine description of the days of destiny. All of this information, Father, is so key to our understanding of the times in which we're living and then how we live in these times. Thank you for your word and its exhortation to us, eagerly to await the rapture of the church, the next main event in God's calendar of activities. In that precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. I mentioned earlier, this is the only time in history that these two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians, have been in a situation that world leaders seem to think that they must do everything to resolve it. This is the end of the story of Jacob and Esau. The prophecies focused on these two brothers are about to be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. One of the great videos that we had the privilege of working on, Rick and myself with my father, Esau and the Palestinian. It traces the lineage from Esau of ancient times until the Palestinians of today. Shot in Petra on location. Great, great video. If you'd like to get that, you can go to our bookstore and place that order. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, R.C. Murrow will be talking about Amalek of that lineage from Esau, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. An Israeli military spokesman warns that Hamas leaders are dead men walking as ground troops advance to the heart of Gaza City. Thousands of Palestinians are fleeing northern Gaza, the U.N. reports, as Israeli ground and air campaigns intensify. Uncharted Ministries partners with and supports Christian leaders on both sides pray that people will turn to Jesus for lasting hope instead of a political situation. A nonprofit board typically oversees an organization's strategy, finances, and operations. A recent trip to Uganda introduced Wycliffe USA board members to the Bible translators they support. Board Chair Lindsay Olsberg says the advisors met teams working on three different projects in various stages of completion. They also examined a new approach that's gaining ground in places like Uganda or a Bible translation. Learn more at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Todd Morris. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, I had uh, one of our broadcast partners give me a call and uh, brought to my attention uh, information that I think is very pertinent to today's program. R.C. Merle, welcome back to the program. Great to be back with you, Jimmy. Thank you. Yes, sir. R.C., you sent me the Israeli websites were buzzing this past week with remarks made by Prime Minister Netanyahu relating the Hamas slaughter of Israeli men, women, and children to biblical Amalek. Now, I know you wrote your book, Antichrist, The Search for Amalek, some time ago. What can you tell us about this? Uh, Jimmy, my journey into Amalek started in 2011, a few days before the Arab Spring. One of my sons encouraged me to start a blog since I was studying current events in Bible prophecy with Jack Kinsella, who was involved in the production of Hal Lindsey's TV programs. Uh, on January 30th, I started a prophecy tracker, and by March, thanks to Jack, we had the beginning of an audience. And, uh, Jimmy, March is also the time of the Jewish Feast of Purim. I became really interested in finding out more about the principal antagonist of Purim called Haman the Agagite. Now, Haman bore an eerie resemblance to some of the mass murderers of Jews that started me on a three-year search to find a link among several historic anti-Semites. I was looking for a possible bloodline to connect the dots. Mm. I started with Esau's descendants, which led me to his illegitimate grandson, Amalek, of whom God swore to have war with in every generation, as stated in Exodus 17, 16. Okay, so you self-published the book in 2013 and set about trying to get pastors and prophecy teachers to read the book. How did, how did that go? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is only one pastor, and that's the church that we attended, endorsed, endorsed the book. Uh, others, including prophecy groups who will remain nameless, uh, acted like I sent them the plague. Not only did they not acknowledge the book, but none even ever called me back. It was zip, zero, nada, nothing. <laughs> so, so how did you keep it going? Jimmy, I, uh, I probably posted at least 5,000 uh, times on Amalek on Prophecy Tracker. And so far, uh, you're the first person other than friends and family to ask me about it. Yes. So why do you think that is? Yeah, I, this was interesting. At the time, uh, uh, I was in a large Bible study group at the time the book was published, so it got a lot of curiosity. What I found was when most, uh, when most Christians think of Middle Eastern terror groups, they think of Ishmael. After all, it was Ishmael whom uh, God calls in Genesis sixteen twelve a wild donkey of a man, and his hand would be against every man. But God also promised blessing on Ishmael and who was circumcised, and would eventually have 12 sons, despite his aggressive behavior, a very different outcome from Esau's, of whom Obadiah 1 and 18 said, there will be no survivors from the house of Esau. Second, I found that most Christians have a rather distorted view of the seriousness of the biblical account of Jacob and Esau. In fact, many people consider Esau to have been a victim, and the rightful owner who was cheated out of the title deed to the promised land. Yeah, which is kind of how a lot of people feel about Hamas today, is it not? Exactly. If there was just one verse in all of Scripture that best sets the stage for the conflict we see today, it's Genesis twenty-seven forty-one, and it says this, So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So not only are Esau's descendants still trying to kill Jacob, 
But the final prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi 1, 1 through 4, foretold that Edom would be back in the land in the last days mm-hmm. to recover that lost birthright. But that birthright was never Esau's to recover. The only blessing of the land and the promises for the are for the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's only for them, correct? Um, that's correct. Yeah. R.C., you once told me that at some point you almost scrapped a book since you could not come up with an ending. It's a true story. About the same time as I was working on the book, your dad was holding a two-day Bible prophecy conference at a Baptist church in the next town over from where we lived. He taught for two nights as I feverishly took notes. He had mentioned uh, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Now, I wrote down the verses, and some of what he said got jumbled with other thoughts in my head. When I, when he finished teaching, there were a lot of people waiting to get to speak to him. So I decided to just go home and look at those verses again in the morning. Now, the next morning, and I remember it like yesterday, I looked at my notes and zeroed in on Isaiah 63, and it hit me. Your dad was talking about the second coming and how, the, how Messiah, Jesus Christ, would go to Edom, and the blood of the enemy of Jacob would be on his robe. Wow. I turned to Revelation nineteen thirteen, and what does it say there? He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Jimmy, the blood of Eden will not enter the millennial kingdom. So the ending for the book was found, thanks to your dad. Wow. Isaiah 63, and that's a great passage that we cover when we're standing at Megiddo. And I love that uh, as you look at it, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who was glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. R.C., good information for us as we are studying. And studying God's word, Bible prophecy, really does help us to understand the times in which we're living. Correct? That's absolutely true, Jimmy. Uh, it just became so vivid with what's going on in Israel today. Yes. You know, important when we're teaching as students, and every pastor, every Sunday school teacher, every prophecy teacher, every, you know, whatever, it's important that we're accurate with our information, that we are clear, we give it clearly so that people can understand, and it's practical. And the practical aspect of what you have given us today this accurate message, clarity of thought, is that it helps us to understand the times in which we're living. R.C., so what is next for your book? Jimmy, my wife, who edits the blog, all the Bible studies, and also the first book that we did, uh, agreed with me that with all that's going on with Hamas today, it's time for another edition. Uh, I'm hoping we can complete it by spring. Yes, and we'll be looking for that, and we will have you on the program again to talk about this information that is very pertinent and Let's hope as we edify and educate the body of Christ that more than one pastor will take notice of the information that's given in God's word to prepare believers today and how they are to live. Thank you, R.C. We look forward to joining with you again. Thanks for having me on, Jimmy. God bless. Fulfilled prophecy is one proof that the Bible is a supernatural book. Hundreds of Old Testament prophecies have already been fulfilled, and it is reasonable to conclude that what it says about the end times will be fulfilled as well. The bottom line is this. To survive the end times, make sure you are a believer in Christ, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, until the rapture does take place, let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.